is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say these are unprecedented times in our world, and I sincerely hope the time you spend with this podcast brings some solace to your day. One of the reasons I love talking about literature in all its forms is that it illuminates our human journey and our universal longings. It brings us together and unifies rather than divides. So thank you for tuning in, and as Charles Dickens wrote, have a heart that never hardens, and a temper that never tires, and a touch that never hurts. And I wish for you to be well, be safe, be healthy. Coming up, an interview with Anna Solomon, author of The Book of V., I always wondered about this queen who, the one who was banished and the one who, you know, banished for doing something that seems on the face of it actually like a pretty virtuous thing to refuse to strip in front of her husband and friends. But then when I was a kid, she was always talked about as sort of like possibly a prostitute or a leper or she was really demonized. And I just had kind of, it was just in the back of my head, like, well, what's the deal with Vashti? We'll be back with Anna Solomon in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last six and a half years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft. It's a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort and thought. Whether this is your first listening experience or you are on your 260th episode, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. As our society is changing to independent folks like me producing rich content and meaningful content like that in First Draft, I think we are evolving the model to widely expand the diversity of voices available for the public to tune into. But it takes money, time, equipment, and a lot of heart and sweat to make this content happen. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. As a thank you for your patronage, I get you to the interview faster because you'll get your own dedicated feed without this ask. Starting at just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. I'm also so grateful I often send extra goodies to my patrons. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of First Draft, reminder, membership matters. Again, patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com, and please stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Anna Solomon, who writes fiction and nonfiction. Her novels include The Little Bride, Leaving Lucy Pear, and The Book of V. Solomon's short fiction, essays, and reviews have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, One Story, Tablet, Plowshares, and elsewhere. She teaches creative writing at Barnard College in Warren Wilson's MFA program. Her new novel, The Book of V, intertwines three stories of women living at different times but facing the same challenges of expressing their voices, their sexuality, and their personal power against the backdrops of patriarchal societies, from biblical times to present day. The three women are Persian peasant turned Queen Esther, who is featured in the Old Testament, Vivian, the wife of a senator living in D.C. in the 1970s, and Lily, who struggles with her marriage and children in 2016 Brooklyn. 
As the novel progresses, the reader learns of both the thematic and tangible ways the characters are connected and the timeless nature of their struggles and triumphs. We began the discussion with Anna Solomon sharing how she alighted on this story after she finished her second novel and how the questions that propelled the Book of V had been with her for some time. I do tend to start a new book before the next one comes out, I guess, um, because there is such a, there's this lag time and I mostly because I need to be writing and also because I fear so much the time when the book that's being published will be like when that the tour and all of the attention is over, the idea of not knowing what I have to work on is so terrifying to me that it drives me to figure out a new idea. And, you know, I, I've had this question in my mind since I was a kid I'm Jewish and I grew up celebrating Purim, which is this bizarre kind of burlesque holiday about a king and queen and the queen gets banished because she refuses to parade naked in front of the king and his friends. And then she's, you know, so she's banished. And then this new queen is brought in, who's Esther, um, who's the hero, of course, and she's the Jewish one. And, you know, the whole story is is meant to be like a feel-good story for the Jewish people. And these things happen that could never happen, like a Jewish girl becomes queen and then saves saves her people from genocide, et cetera, et cetera. But I always wondered about this queen who, the one who was banished and the one who, you know, banished for doing something that seems on the face of it actually like a pretty virtuous thing to refuse to strip in front of her husband and friends. But then when I was a kid, she was always talked about as sort of like possibly a prostitute or a leper or like she was really demonized. And I just had kind of it was just in the back of my head like well what's the deal with Vashti I don't know exactly why it returned to me at that moment but I wanted to play around with the idea of what happens if I put this this same this character with what happens to her in a very different time in a time much more recognizable to us and closer to us and that was sort of how the 1970s senator's wife came into being, um, Vivian Barr. Her name is also a V. And then as I was working on that, there was more that I wanted to do with it. And there was another, there was a conversation that needed to be had that um, couldn't be had in just that one timeline. And so, and, and also I became more interested in Esther herself, who had always been, seemed so the opposite, right? Like virtuous, brave, good, loyal. Um, and the more that I dove into sort of the original story, I was like, well, wait a second, this doesn't all necessarily match up. Like these dichotomies between Vashti and Esther, they were, they worked really well in the story that I was told about the story, but they don't really match up with the story itself. I wanted to figure out to imagine what might've really happened then. And so I decided to go back to ancient Persia. And then I think it was around this time that I started thinking pretty clearly on a structural level about uh, Michael Cunningham's The Hours, which is one of my favorite novels. And, you know, which takes a you know Virginia Woolf writing Mrs. Dalloway as its sort of origin story and its book, its original book, and then has its other characters in future times sort of reckoning with and playing out that story. And so... I kind of stole that structure and in, in doing so also came to figure out who my more contemporary character would be, who's Lily, um, who is a second wife like Esther and a mother of two in, in contemporary Brooklyn um, and who's sort of involved in, you know, this sort of struggling with her own desires um, intellectually, sexually, while also kind of trying to figure out how to sew costumes for her daughters to play Esther in the Purim Carnival. And so, and you can see in the book that, you know, these things weave, these stories weave together and eventually converge. This is all to say, I think that that's how it kind of originated, but it's always, it's a little hard to peg an exact moment. I love the idea of Esther being this virtuous, loyal woman, because it makes me think, well, who is really like that, first of all? (laughs) (laughs) And also, you can only be that in relationship to the people around you. Like, I don't think if you were alone in a room, you could be virtuous or, or bad or disloyal. So so some of it, to me, comes back to the sense of control or acquiescence or stubbornness or protest that these yeah. women, Vashti and Esther, made to basically the men in their lives. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the book is very much about power and it's about male power and it's about efforts to control and oppress and the ways in which women find their ways, find ways to exert their own power, often to their own detriment, um, sort of against those men or in, and in relationship to those men. And so, but yeah, that's, I hadn't thought about that before. It's true that it's only in relationship to, which I guess is why, you know, we think about it in terms of, you know, or why those dichotomies exist and why, you know, I think we so often do this to women in particular, it, you know, categorize them and label them and we do it to ourselves and we do it to other women. And it's definitely a big part of what I was very consciously trying to explore and kind of explode in the book. And there's, you know, there's a line toward the end, like the type of woman you imagine yourself becoming does not exist. And I feel like that was very much a driving sort of thread through the book for me that, you know, everything we've been told is only because of someone's agenda, right? <laughs> everything we've been told about Vashti and told to believe about her and told about Esther is, is because of someone's agenda. And yeah, you look at, once you actually like look at the text of the book of Esther, Esther's a concubine in a harem, right? <laughs> I mean, that's actually like what she is in the book. And as you, you structure the book into three parts also, so you have these um, different triads uh -huh. of exile, wandering, and reinvention. And was this something that you laid out in the beginning that made maybe the writing easier because you knew you had these sort of thematic chunks to write toward? Yes. Yes, I did. It did. And I didn't, I don't know. I don't think I had those parts clearly laid out at the very beginning, but at some point as at fairly early on, I realized that I needed another layer of arc to hold things together. Like you're saying both, you know, for the reader and also for myself and um, you know, it, it did those titles, right. You know, exile, wandering and reinvention are in a lot of ways, very biblical, right. In, in very obvious ways. And until we get to reinvention in a way, which was sort of, I think something I discovered as I went that that's where the, you know, the, I guess the, the biblical version would be return. Um, and I, you know, made the choice not to have that be where the characters were going. I wanted the idea of, of if not transformation, then a sort of reinvention and a, a new becoming of oneself. So let's talk a little bit about each character, Esther, V, and Lily. And to some extent, there's a, the Vashti's in there as well. And you said when you started thinking about Vashti's disappearance, you started thinking about maybe an equivalent modern character that would maybe parallel her. And that was Vivian Barr V, who was married to the senator. Do you want to talk a little bit about her character? Yeah, I mean, she was so fun for me to write and develop and get to know. Um, I think because one of the things about Vivian Barr is that, you know, so she's grown up, she's the daughter of a, of a senator and a granddaughter of a of a governor and, you know, she's been raised very much to, with the, the idea that her access to power would come through being married to a powerful man. Um, but she's also, this is the year is 1973. She's also living at a moment when what women can be and are is really up for question and not so much in the circles that she's part of in terms of like her you know, the other wives of the senators, but in terms of there's a women's group that she's been encouraged to go to from an, a fellow graduate of Wellesley where she went to college and that she goes to and sort of meets this whole other, you know, again, coming back to type of woman, this whole other type of women, at least she, she calls them the women's group women, um, you know, who are not wearing bras and who are talking about liberation and who are, you know, they're just bringing this entirely different perspective to her. And she's really consciously kind of wrestling with her allegiance to these two different groups of women when the book starts. And so um, it means that, you know, when when her husband asks her to do this thing, she has these voices in her head. Um, and, they've you know, they're really voices in her head throughout, um, although that shifts later, as you know, and, and she sort of, I think, comes into her own voice as the book goes on. And it's interesting. I started this book in, I think, either late 2015 or early 2016, and, you know, I remember kind of not knowing 
and having thinking, well, is anyone going to believe that, you know, a, a man would ask his wife to strip in front of his friends? Like, I know it's true. I know it's true. Meaning like, I know this, this could happen. Um, but like, are, are people going to believe that? Because people I think don't want to face sort of the reality of how, um, how men treat women even now, right. Even as much as we know. And then it's like, <laughs> what happened in the next few years between the, uh, between the election and the Me Too movement, it's sort of like, just kind of like all of that came crumbling down. I was like, this is not something anybody would question anymore, you know, like this anyway. So that was just like an interesting um, shift that happened over the course of writing the book and, and over the, you know, in terms of my thoughts about how this, this point in the plot would be received. She has an interesting dynamic with her young senator husband, who's a young senator from Rhode Island, who has a lot of power over her, especially sexually. She does have this woman's group off to the side. And at one point I was thinking, well, V is in the wrong life. And then she's at the party and she thinks when she's drunk with the senator's wives that she is already liberated. She felt the certain freedom that no doubt yes. was um, enhanced by the alcohol. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about her relationship with her husband and that power dynamic. Um, and was she yeah. liberated and how she might have changed over the course of the novel? Yeah, I mean, and her, her relationship to him, it is very, it is all about power. And um, we do see at the beginning, even before the party, that he has a lot of sexual power over her, um, although she's also sort of begun in her journey with the women's group to, like, come into a sense of what it would be like for her to have an orgasm. And so she's, she's like, starting to gain her own sexual power. But then at the same time, there's this, this other dynamic, which is that she's the one with the money and she's the one with the sort of the heritage, so to speak, right, coming out of this family, this political family, whereas he's like this son of an Irish immigrant that comes from the original Book of Esther, not from the book itself, but sort of writings that have been done about it, about how Vashti was actually this noble Babylonian, whereas Ahasuerus, the king, was actually just like a steward in her father's kingdom. Like he was nobody. And so I really wanted to play with that, like how those power dynamics work. I mean, the question of, you know, is she in fact liberated? I think as you see in that scene and throughout the book, like it, it only, it sort of depends on how she perceives herself to be in a given moment, <laughs> which isn't to say there aren't real, right, like limitations to women's lives, obviously. I mean, she is actually sent away, smeared in the press, um, you know, like given no options and shut down. Um, but her, it turns out that her sort of sense of her own freedom and her own power resides much more in how she tells her story to herself. And I think that's what shifts over the course of the book the most. One of the things that I thought was interesting going back to the original story with, with Esther. So Esther is just this very beautiful, in a very natural way, girl whose parents died and so she's living with her uncle and he is lusting for her and he basically has to get rid of her or something really bad's going to happen between them and so she ends up going to parade in front of the king and he he selects her to be his wife and you would think because she comes from these humble beginnings because she's Jewish and and people don't know that at first she's already a marginalized person that when she gets to the palace and becomes a queen she'll have all this power and something that you wrote about several times was that she didn't and because Esther has no power people fear her because of that then when she comes around and maybe asks for favors they want to do it even less because she's the queen, which isn't something you expected. And I, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, you know, that dynamic um, was one that evolved, you know, as I wrote the book, as I read and researched and just thought and kind of imagined about about this time period and about, you know, all these assumptions that I grew up with about what it would mean to be Queen Esther or a queen at all. And then when you start to sort of really dive into, well, what would it have been like to be in a king's court with however many wives he has and the authority to choose at will? And and you see it, I mean, in the book of Esther itself, it's like she 
you know, she fears for her life just in going to talk to him. Again, it it was interesting. It's one of those things that it was like, oh, wait, the story I was told about her doesn't match up with the story. Because if she, you know, of course, she winds up being really brave and then everything works out and he doesn't do anything bad to her. But that's because, you know, it's again, it's a story that's made that was written to create this holiday that would that Jews could like celebrate and get drunk and and laugh. And, and it's really a, car, you know, a carnival holiday, meaning everything gets turned upside down from how it actually is, which is that actually like she wouldn't have been the queen at all. And if she were, he probably would have killed her if she came to talk to him without his without his permission. So it was sort of like continuing to dig deeper and deeper into the story itself, into the writings about the story, and then also just into my creation of the world as I imagined it to be. One of the things that Esther relies on is is a sense of of magic. The magical elements in ancient Persia were something that originally kind of came as a surprise to me. And I think that, I think it really grew out of language in a lot of ways as I was writing those, the opening chapters of them in the desert. And I was, I was inspired by, there's this Israeli writer, Shulamith Harabin, who writes these, what feel both very biblical and also very timeless um, fictions often set sort of in the desert. And, and I, I was inspired by and also that and also um a heron applefeld's work um which has a lot of sort of surreality to it and inspired to kind of have my ancient persia be ancient persia and also anywhere at once um i wasn't i definitely was not interested in trying to recreate ancient Persia in a way that would claim to my reader to be sort of accurate, because the more that I learned about it, the, the more I learned that like people just have no idea, especially like every, almost everything. What's interesting when you start to research ancient Persia, like Jews in ancient Persia in particular, mo- almost all of what comes up leads you back to the book of Esther. And so it's like the assumptions that everybody makes about how it would be have been for Jews in ancient Persia all come from this book of fiction. I mean, obviously, there are people who don't feel that way, right? Like, there are people who read it very much as history. So it gave me this freedom, and then I kind of ran with it. And I think in the in the very opening chapter, as I, I guess as I was playing with this narrative voice and creating this camp of Jews outside the palace wall and giving myself that freedom to, to imagine it since we really had no idea, there was this goblin that showed up with this coin, which, as you know from having read the book, is sort of the beginning of all of these troubles for the people. And I think that was the beginning of where I was like, oh, there's this, there's something else at work going on here. And then I kind of kind of ran with it and and gave Esther these this power and also made magic a very accepted thing among these people. Like there are the people who have magical powers among this group of people and they're the people that don't. It's just what it is. There's a line in there I think it said something about turning into a man before death that for Esther in order to give birth to yourself again. Yes. So there's this, there was this great exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum. I think it may have been about ancient Persia and how fluidly they saw gender. And in one of the, you know, little placards next to this statue, it talked about this view that in order that when a man would die, the idea was that he would become a woman as he crossed into the afterlife in order to give birth to himself again. Um, And I was just like, wow. (laughs) And so I played with that um, because, you know, in this harem that Esther's in, she meets all these other girls, all these other virgins, supposedly from all over. And so they each come with their own cultures and their own mythologies and their own traditions. And so I wanted, I, I sort of brought it in through that. And so then Esther ties back to Lily um, in several ways. Lily's obsessed with the Purim and dressing and and making sure her kids have the right costume to be Esther. But they're also both second wives. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Lily and her plight. She's in in Brooklyn in about 2016. Yeah, early 2016. Yeah, so her husband was married first to this woman named Vera, another V, of course, and it was a sh- pretty short marriage. Billy and he have been married a lot longer than he was ever married to his first wife. And he and his first wife didn't have many kids. But it's sort of, 
you know, hangs or in her own mind a lot. Vera kind of hangs there. She never met her. Um, you know, it's not as if they talk about her anymore, but it's just sort of like this presence and this presence of somebody who is younger, even though she's not anymore. But of course, the last time she was married to Lily's husband, she was. I think in that dynamic, I really wanted to explore how an absence can be like a very, very powerful presence in a relationship. You know, in this case, a first partner, a first spouse can sort of still be living with a couple. <laughs> and it, I mean, it's just one of the things that she's sort of struggling with as the book opens. She's very neurotic. And so she's sort of struggling with everything. <laughs> if I took all of my, like, all of my thoughts and worries and fears, and I like, just sort of like ran with them. And then I also didn't work. <laughs> like I didn't have a career. Um, that's, it's like Lily is who I would be. <laughs> so Lily has, has two kids. Her, her husband works and she doesn't, but that's a conscious choice. So she could raise the kids. So definitely her own worth and her role in motherhood, as well as her role as a daughter, her relationship with her mom is very important. And there's um, a line in there that says she's too old to still believe that she's going to somehow wind up being someone she hasn't already become. So she's sort of in her own mind has, has killed the potential of every day Mm -hmm. could bring, could bring change for her. She's really, I mean, struggling in such a different way than Via is, but struggling. Yes, she is. And, and um, yeah, she's, she doesn't have a solid sense of self. She's trying to have one, but in her struggle also, it, I mean, you know, again, coming back to this idea of these different sort of the, the types of women, you know, Lily is also sort of like, well, who am I? Like, am I like that woman who throws the party with like the brownie bites and knows how to sew and is always wearing boots with heels at the playground and always looks, you know, fresh and like nicely made up? Or am I like my mother who's this kind of presents herself at least as this like hardcore feminist and has really criticized Lily for having given up her career? Or am I, you know, again, she has all these voices and these competing parts or or what, and what about the part of me that, you know, gave up my academic career she was offered a tenure track job and she turned it down and that has felt like the right choice and most days it does and then there you know it's sort of like but who but who is she going to be um because it has turned out that that the work as much as she is trying to want what she has that it doesn't feel like enough and I mean and along with that which I think it's like even though she she is working incredibly hard in the sense that there's just never and a never-ending stream of things that need doing, it doesn't feel like she's getting anything done, (laughs) which is, you know, something that, you know, I think anybody who has really taken care of any other creature other than themselves has, um, has experienced at different moments and can, can relate to. I would say she has a good relationship with Adam, uh, her husband. I mean, she is kind of obsessed with the first wife, but they have a nice relationship. But Mm -hmm. she still kind of has this fantasy world that can be actualized to some degree because she has this man who's like more rough and tough and rugged in Brooklyn, who's actually a fisherman. (laughs) that keeps her attention and they do end up hanging out because their children are friends. Yeah. So, so Hal is his name, of course, was, was fun to write. And it was actually something that my editor marked on, remarked on pretty early on in our process together. And that I was grateful for, which is that I introduced this sort of attraction that Lily had um, very early on in the book, but I never allowed it to build at all or go anywhere. This is in earlier drafts or in the, in the draft that actually, you know, that my, that Holt bought. And, you know, she was like, look, I'm not saying they have to have like a full blown affair, but I do think there needs to be a sense of like, that this is going somewhere that we, you know, that the reader is, is sort of hung on that in a way and following that. And, and it turned out that I think that was true, not just for the reader, but for Lily too, as I, you know, like, oh, right. She needed in some ways to sort of see where that might go. And that relates to her own sense of power, 
So not just sort of, I mean, I think people often, I, the phrase came to my mind, like to get it out of her system. But I, I think that's not what it is. It's, it's actually to sort of recognize it as a part of her. So it, it became a much more, um, it's like not a huge part of the book, but I think a more essential part of the book and, and important to her development. I think it's actually gets in her system in a good way, which makes me think yes. about something that Antonia Nelson, the writer says, which is, you know, she doesn't want to read or write about the affair that killed a marriage. She's more interested in the affair that saved a marriage. Mm. And it's not that this necessarily was an affair, but it, it awoke something in Lily mm-hmm. that did save her. I mean, it, it brought up a lot of questions, yes. but it also was a bomb in some way. Yeah. And it needed to be woken. I think that's right. I love Antonia Nelson's work so much. There's some lines in there about mothering and about specifically mothering daughters and Uh that there are a lot of mothers or mother figures even who are scarred by their daughters. And there's a line in there. It's very simple, but it's so powerful. And it says, girls are unnerving. (laughs) Oh, right. I think V says that, right? Yeah. Who never, who, who doesn't have her own daughters, of course, which is interesting. Yes. I think it's true. I mean, having been a girl and, and I think, you know, again, this comes back to power. And is it, is it true that girls themselves are scary? I think, no, like that, that they are are out to unnerve. No, I think that does the way we experience girls, even when we've been one and like believe in them and believe in their power still, do they, do they like, do we perceive them as as scary? I think, yeah. I mean, I think you see that, you know, it's like, think about the crucible and like, you know, like the ways in which girls have been written and performed across centuries. I do think that there is, and, and it's something that, you know, that I don't feel proud of, but that I have felt as a mother now of a daughter and having been a daughter to a mother, like, oh yeah, there's a lot of power in this, in this young woman. And it doesn't always feel safe. <laughs> it's interesting, even in it, even as I want her to come into her power. Um, it's really tricky. Do you think that your daughter knows that sometimes she can be unnerving for you? Oh yeah, she knows everything. She knows so much. This... <laughs> but again, maybe that's just my perception. Maybe I'm projecting powers onto her that she doesn't in fact have. Yeah, I mean, you had written something I think on your Facebook, you were going out for a hike or a run with your yes. with your daughter and you no. noticed how tall she was. And she said to you, yeah, I'm like your friend, <laughs> but I'm like your mean friend. Yes, <laughs> that's a really good example. I mean, I can ha- find no way to explain that other than to say like that she gets it on some level. Like um, it was very funny. I was like, wow, that's a funny, smart thing to say. And also like, oh, my God, God, you really get it. <laughs> And you dedicated the book to your mom and your daughter. I did. I did. Yes. Um, It really is to them both. And, you know, I think I feel I remember, you know, when I was first pregnant, I had this longing to have only sons. And the longing grew only out of the fact that I was really scared of just the like complexity and difficulty of the mother daughter relationship. And you know, once I had my daughter, then I was like, I want another one so I can, she can have a sister. But then I had a son. So there you go. So regardless of all that, I think that, you know, I, I have a very complex and, and close and also really difficult relationship with my mother. And it, I feel, um, you know, I'm, I think I'll always be untangling it. And I can already see that that's going to be the same for my daughter. And, you know, I feel a lot of guilt about that I feel you know it's like oh yeah we're none of us is like an easy person to have as a mother (laughs) um I wanted to offer this book to my mother certainly as a way I think the in the book and I think she has experienced the book this way as a way of saying like I see you you know um like I see what you um lived through as a mother and what you were up against and like you can see here, I hope that I, that I get it. And then also for my daughter, you know, for one day when she will read this book, um, to kind of offer it to her as an opening, like, 
in all the ways that I may have, you know, in, uh, you know, unintentionally made you feel like your options were narrower or that you, or you felt pressure, or you felt criticized or whatever. Like, I hope that it feels like for a gift of like opening, like you be, you know, you be, you be you and don't let me or anybody else sort of shut that down. Well, one of the things I walked away with at the end, and I wrote this as a note, the stories people need versus the truth. And that, I think, it comes out a lot with these stories and definitely beginning with Esther. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, that was one of, like, the the kind of really fun revelations that I had early on in my research. And, you know, to just be clear, I I am so, I'm completely unknowledgeable, basically, about, like, the Bible and the Torah. And like, you know, I know very, the very, very basics. So, and I had never done a deep dive into like reading commentary and Talmud and all of these different things. And, and one of the things that was very exciting to me, um, was to kind of discover, um, ways of thinking about these texts as, you know, not as like, well, this is what actually happened, but like, oh, right, this is an, a work of fiction. It was created and it was created for a reason. And, and most people agree that the, this book, the book of Esther was, was written to create a holiday. <laughs> um, and so, and it was written to give people what they needed, you know, to give people a reason to have a crazy celebration and to put on masks and to, God, that sounds crazy right now, but, um, you know, to, um, and, you know, that you're, they're ordered to, as they watch the Purim play to get so drunk that they can't tell the difference by the end between the hero and the villain. Um, and so, you know, like that's, so yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. So what story would give them what they need? And I think in the same way, like what stories we are told by our parents and by our culture and by the books that we read about who we are and who we can be like the, the power of that. And, and also, I guess, you know, I think in a way, you know, each of my characters in her own way through the book comes to sort of get clearer about what story she needs to tell herself and to be told um, and to tell others. You know, there's a lot about women coming into their own voice as writers and storytellers. So they get clearer about what those stories are. So when you began writing this, you said that you were, you know, curious about Vashti your whole life. So are you writing in some sense to explore and find answers or just to dive deeper into the mystery or maybe it's both or neither? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I I wasn't certainly looking to find an answer in the sense of like what really happened because nobody knows. Um, And do I think that like the answer I came up with in this book is in any way definitive or, or right? No. Um, I do think that there's a truth in it. I, so I think, you know, which again, isn't to say it's accurate, but there, I think what I, what I'm seeking to do is find a truth and create a truth that offers something else, like offers a somewhere else to go from there. Um, after, you know, I've written the book and after you've read the book. It, yeah. So it, it, it does lead to more questions ultimately, but hopefully also along the way, you know, creates sort of new meaning and also just new ways of seeing what we've already seen or what we thought we saw. Did you have any epiphanies? And I, you know, I don't necessarily believe in epiphanies in literature, but um, sometimes you have one maybe in the process of writing. And I'm wondering if you sort of realized anything or came out looking at some topic in a new way. Yes. But I think that the things that I kind of, I think the things I realized were mostly sort of plot things that I can't share. <laughs> like the big reveals for me as I wrote this were like, oh, um, and they were things I worked into the into the plot of the book, like the, the revelations um, that happen along the way. Is there a lesson about writing in there? I think along that, along those lines, for me, you know, I was one of those writers when I was in, you know, first writing stories. And even after quite a while of writing stories, when I was in graduate school, that I thought of myself as like, well, I'm a character driven writer. I'm not like, I'm not very good at plot. Like that was sort of the line that I told myself. And, um, and I feel like I've really learned how to write plot and actually 
kind of embraced it as something that I feel quite capable of and excited about. And this book, I think, really sort of affirmed and it, it really challenged me in that way. And then my ability to carry it off, to pull it off, really affirmed my sense of like, oh, I get this now. And I, and I really do think, I mean, I, I say this to my students all the time, like, I, you know, I, plot really is something you can learn. Um, and you have to read for it and study for it and, and like, put your mind in that place. But it's not, um, it's not, I think, as mysterious as something like voice or character or just like, are you capable of insight, right? Like, it's just, it's, it's really like, there's, there are certain, there are certain tricks to it. There's certain shapes to it. And I think if you open, you kind of train your mind in a certain way, you start to understand how it works. So I think that those, those plot twists I was talking about before, I don't think I would have been capable of pulling off in my last book, certainly. Um, and when I did write them and first had readers read to see like, does this work? Like, do you, you know, and, and then got feedback, like, oh, and when I got to this point and realized such and such, it felt both totally surprising and then totally right. I was just thrilled because that's the feeling I wanted, you know, my, my readers to have, um, the feeling that I love as a reader so much. Will you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So, um, I, so I, the caveat here is that I am not with my books at the moment, um, because of the, the, this pandemic. Um, and so, you know, I might, and I guess this is with any question, like I might've answered this differently at a different time, but there was a copy of, um, Madame Bovary here that I have been reading, rereading. And I found this paragraph that I think encapsulates, I'm just, I'll, I'll read it and then we can talk about it. Um, it's at the beginning of chapter nine. Often, when Charles was out of the house, she would go to the cupboard and take the green silk cigar case from under the linen where she had hidden it. She would look at it, open it, and even smell the scent of its lining, a blend of tobacco and verbena. Whose could it have been? It must have belonged to the Vicomte. Perhaps it was a present from his mistress. It must have been worked on some rosewood frame, a little gem of a thing hidden away from all eyes, a little thing whereon she had lavished hour upon hour, her soft tresses overshadowing it as she sat pensively at her task. Love had breathed its sighs amid the stitches on the canvas. Every stitch had enwrought thereon a memory or a hope, and all those lines of interwoven threads did but symbolize the continuity of the same unuttered passion. And then, one morning, the Vicomte had taken it away with him. What had they talked about as it lay on the wide mantelpiece between the, between the vases filled with flowers and the pompadour clocks? She was at toast, and he, he was far away in Paris now. What sort of a place was Paris? What a sense of grandeur and immensity clung about the very name. Paris, she murmured it under her breath because she loved the sound of it. It boomed in her ears like the great bell of a cathedral. It seemed to glow with golden fire even on the labels of her pomade pots. I was just, I love this passage so much because of the way that, you know, we see Flaubert take this object, right? Like this, this simple object and just blow it up and create so many, so many layers to it. And, and in, in doing so, you know, reveal his character so fully. Um, and, you know, these questions that being like, whose could it have been? It must have belonged to the Vicom. Perhaps it was a present from his mistress. So, like these questions and this sort of uncertainty, but the rest of the paragraph moves on in this way where we actually forget that she doesn't know, right? Like her fantasy is so um, detailed and so and so rich and kind of, um, and also so much the story she needs, right? Like to come back to our conversation um, and then moves on to Paris and like just the way in which we are allowed to see someone's um, fantasy world grow and again return to this very physical you know very tangible object which to me is like one of the great pleasures of both reading and also writing fiction is sort of how objects can be used to just open up worlds and open up characters. Can you read something you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah so this is um it's interesting we kind of talked a little bit about 
some aspect of this in our conversation. And it's, it comes from the very final chapter, but I think it doesn't really give away too much. And it probably like by the time people will read the book, they will have forgotten this anyway, if it does give anything away. But okay, so this is in Lily's perspective. Now, a couple rows away, Kyla and her kids brandish their groggers like lassos. It's their first spiel. Closer to the front, her mother's friend, Susan Levinson, laughs, while in the aisle, the rabbi dances in a Wonder Woman costume, while not far from her, in the third row, Lily's daughter's dresses glow. When Lily presented them at last with their costumes, they smiled and thanked her. They were oddly serene. It was clear they had expected the dresses, that they never doubted Lily's story that she was making them. They bounce in their seats now, unthinking, aglow. It doesn't matter to them that Lily still doesn't really know how to sew or that the love she feels for them, so blinding and pure in moments, is obscured from her in others, or that she kissed a man who is not their father, that though she will not kiss him again, will not blow up her life, she does not want to blow it up, this thing she's made with Adam, begun in that bar, this thing with holes they will never patch. She wants it. She may think of him and desire him. So I chose that because this sort of the emotional recognition that Lily works to in this paragraph was something that I tried to write in this a chapter that was a scene that I tried to write probably like 15 times meaning not like even 15 drafts I'm sure there were many more than that but like completely different scenes <laughs> um, that involved Lily going to her husband's office and I don't, it's still like, it, it, it was just one of these sort of hell spirals as a writer where I would just be like, well, maybe this is what will get her there. Or maybe this, you know, like it was, and I think, you know, I've, I've learned, although I hadn't quite obviously remembered as I was going through that, like, if that's all a scene is doing, then like, it doesn't, it's not really, uh, that's not, it can't be the whole purpose of the scene. And then there's actually, and the problem of course, was that there was no dramatic reason for the scene to be happening. <laughs> and so after much sort of playing, well, maybe this could be the dramatic reason. And that's the dramatic reason. I wound up just cutting the chapter altogether, thanks to my editor helping me realize that I could do that. And it was like this, like, ah, oh, I could just write these few lines <laughs> in the final chapter. Um, and wow, isn't that weird? Like the, like the work that I thought that chapter needed to do has already been done elsewhere in the book. Um, so that's why I was sharing that. Where do you write? Well, in normal times, um, I write at some, at a place called the Brooklyn Writers Space, um, which is in Brooklyn, obviously. Um, and it's a shared writing space where like each person, you walk in and take a different desk each day. Um, and I have, you know, a community there, a lot of people I don't know, but people that I do know, and, and I've been working there since we moved back to New York city about five years ago. Um, and when I, right now I'm writing sort of in any, on a, any space on a like flat surface that I can find in a quiet corner right now when we're, we're our whole family is here. Although the mo most, the only real like focused writing time I have right now at this moment is I've been waking up early at like 6.30 and writing till eight. Um, so then I can kind of have my pick of spaces. <laughs> what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I'm a big fan of taking walks. Um, it used to be running more and I run less than I used to, but I think moving my body, exercise, um, showers are great too. Um, and, and also, I mean, for me, I, I'm a very, I'm somebody like I, I'd be very happy not talking to anybody all day until it gets to be like five or 6 PM. And then, you know, I'm, I'm a, it turns out a social person in the evenings. Like I do like to have connection with people. And so, you know, when we're, when we're in New York, I'll, you know, once or twice a week, I, maybe not that often. Yeah. I wind up going out and doing things. And, um, right now I'm sometimes zooming with people, <laughs> but yeah, that feels like an important counter to the writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? It sort of depends on the project and where I'm at with it, but I have a very small group of, I mean, they're not a group unto themselves, but I have a small sort of collection of friends. Um, and one is my sister 
one is my agent, you know, a, a collection that's of people that I um, have met over many, many years who um, are, have been are kind enough to, to read drafts for me um, and are willing to read at different points in the process. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, um, I don't like it. It feels really bad. Um, <laughs> and I think that I've gotten somewhat better at it over the years at, um, but I don't honestly know. I'd like to say that's because I'm just more sort of somehow resilient or confident. I feel like it's probably more because I've actually have had more things published. And so I can just, I, I sort of just have, it's easier to have the faith that like, oh, right, this is how things go. Um, things get rejected and most likely someone else will publish this. <laughs> um, so this, it's, I think it's partly just like the faith that comes with having more experience, but I try to let myself just feel it. You know, like I try to not um, have a perfect response like, oh, well, I just won't care about this and just be like, oh, I'm really disappointed or, oh, I feel ashamed or, oh, I feel, you know, whatever it is that I feel and just feel it um, until it sort of passes. It seems to be the best way um, to move on. What is your favorite word? This is a fun one. I, I started overthinking this because I knew you were going to ask it. And then I went back to like my very first instinct because I think you want it to be an instinctual thing, which is purely just like a, the sound of it, the word that came to mind was superfluous. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This was so fun. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Anna Solomon, author of The Book of V. If you liked today's show, check out my earlier interview with Anna Solomon on the novel Leaving Lucy Pear. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 260 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Some clips from this month's interviews that patrons will receive as extras include an additional 25 minutes collectively of interviews with Carolyn Forche, Anna Solomon, and Anne Napolitano, and writing tips from some of these same authors. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Sue Monk Kidd, Vanessa Hua, Anne Enright, Mary South, Tara Shea Nesbitt, and Lori Gottlieb. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy out there, and I hope this podcast makes the time at home more pleasant. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.